0: Welcome to the Westminster Town Hall Forum, originating from Westminster Presbyterian Church here in downtown Minneapolis. I am Donald Meisel, minister with my colleagues to and with this center city church located on the Nicollet Mall at 12th Street. Today, we offer you our 50th Town Hall Forum. Yes, this is the 50th time since the autumn of 1980 that we have opened the doors of this large semicircular sanctuary of a Thursday noon to all comers to hear a voice of conscience address an issue of moment out of the wealth of his or her experience and talent. We want to thank all who have kept this endeavor alive and healthy. Minnesota Public Radio, who believed in us from the beginning. American Public Radio, individual contributors, foundations, corporate sponsors and co-sponsors. Paul and Diane Nyman, who chaired the Town Hall Forum Committee the first five years of its life. Mary Beth and David Kohler, who have carried the flag for the past two years. Thanks to Briggs & Morgan for local distribution on Minnesota Public Radio, to Honeywell for national rebroadcasts on American Public Radio, and to speakers who had something to say, two and a half score of them. I might say some scored more than others. and most especially, thank you to you who come, and you who listen. Today's 50th Town Hall Forum speaker is Arthur R. Miller. He is a professor of law at Harvard Law School, where he has taught since 1971. Before joining the Harvard faculty, he practiced law in New York City, and taught at the University of Minnesota, 62 to 65, and the University of Michigan. Professionally, he is nationally known for his work on court procedure. The general public knows him for his work in the field of the right of privacy, a subject on which he's also written, testified, debated, and helped form legislation. His book, I have it with me, The Assault on Privacy, Computers, Data Banks, and Dossiers, has been very influential. He hosts a weekly television show on law in Boston called Miller's Court. Since July 1980, he's been making weekly appearances as a law commentator on ABC's Good Morning America program. There is, I think you will agree, a special fitness about his being with us while we as a nation are in the thick of celebrating the 200th anniversary of the U.S. Constitution. Professor Miller's subject today is the media versus privacy, a clash of constitutional values. Professor Miller, welcome home to Minnesota. That should do it.
1: Thank you, Don. It, it is coming home. I said on Boone and Erickson this morning that my three years as a member of the Minnesota faculty probably were the three happiest years of my life, and I meant it when I said it, and I mean it when I repeat it. I have very fond memories of fall crystal clear days just like today, some of them in the old Minnesota stadium. As Don indicated, we are celebrating the 200th year of our Constitution this year, indeed a week ago, and therefore I'd like to talk to you about something that's very American, namely our right. And I'd like to start with a very upbeat, positive statement. We Americans have more rights than any other people on the face of the earth. You probably don't wake up each morning reciting that to yourselves. You probably should. We get so wrapped up in the affairs of the day, the issues of our time, nuclear power. Power and the environment and the economy in South Africa and the Middle East that we unfortunately fail to count our blessings. We have many, many blessings. And although I say that we have more rights than any other people on the planet and probably more rights than any other people who ever inhabited the planet, I don't mean to be Pollyanna-ish about it. I am not saying we have enough rights. I can think of a few more we should have. Nor am I saying that we have done the optimum job of distributing those rights to our people. We could do a better job at that as well. Nonetheless, all things considered, we have done better than any other people who have shared this globe with us. That's the good news. The bad news, or the not-so-good news, is the fact that whenever you give people a lot of rights, inevitably two or more of those rights will come into conflict they will rub up against one another. They will go bump in the night. Indeed, my right to swing my arm ends at the tip of your nose. One of the unique geniuses of American society, and I think one of the unique geniuses of the American Constitution has been that but for the Civil War, we would have a perfect record in balancing those competing and conflicting rights. We have done an excellent job of accommodating the conflict. Somehow we work it out. And one of the reasons we have been able to work out all of the conflicts that we have experienced in our 200 years is the fact that we simply don't believe that any one right is absolute. There is always play in the joints to make our accommodation. Now, what I'd like to do today is to discuss one of those situations in which two of our rights are in conflict. They are going bump in the night. It's sort of a picture or an allegory of rights in conflict and our need to accommodate these conflicting rights. The two rights I'd like to talk to you about are, first, the right of freedom of the press. And second, the right of privacy. Now you may not feel the tension yet that exists between those rights. Let me describe it another way. What is freedom of the press? Loosely speaking, freedom of the press or free speech is the public's right to know. What's privacy? Privacy is the individual's right to be let alone. The public's right to know versus the individual's right to be let alone. Maybe now you can start feeling the tension between those two rights. Let me illustrate it for you with a vignette out of our history. Some years ago, Gerald Ford was President of the United States, and there came a day on which he was giving a speech, an open-air speech in San Francisco, Union Square. Thousands of people had come to hear the President speak, and in the middle of the crowd, an arm raised up, and at the end of the arm was a gun. It was the arm of Squeaky Frome, and she was about to shoot the President of the United States. Fortunately, standing right next to her was a 25-year-old ex-Marine, and seeing the gun in her hand, he instinctively lunged forward and struck the arm just as she was firing. We don't know whether this young ex-Marine actually saved the life of the president. Maybe she was a terrible shot. What we do know instinctively was the 25-year-old ex-Marine was a hero. He was a hero. And we Americans are warm and generous people. We love our heroes. We love our heroes. And we Americans do something else with our heroes as well as love them. We report on them. And day after day, the airwaves and the newspapers were filled with stories about this heroic ex-Marine. On the fourth day, there appeared an item in a syndicated columnist Column in the San Francisco Chronicle. These are columns that go out to 150 newspapers around the country. They're columns monitored by the wire services. The wire services feeding into the newsrooms at every newspaper, radio station, television station in the land. An item about the 25-year-old ex-Marine picked up by the newspapers, broadcast on the radio, telecast on the evening news. By the time Dan Rather said good night, or courage, or whatever he's saying these days. (laughs) By the time the evening news ended, 120 million Americans that's the power of the media, 120 million Americans had been told that the 25-year-old ex-Marine was gay. To me, that's the conflict, not one we will shed blood over, but a conflict. The public has a right to know about any attempt on the president's life. There's no question about that. The public has the right to know a great deal about an attempted assassination. Who was it? Is he safe? What did the Secret Service do? Is it a conspiracy? Is the government functioning? But the 25-year-old ex-Marine had a right to be let alone. Is the price of heroism in this country the risk that you will be stripped naked by the media and that 120 million Americans will be told something your mother doesn't know? Press privacy. Now, I suggest this is a heavyweight bout. These two rights that we're talking of are not penny-ante-items. This is not a flyweight match. I can't imagine American life without either one of them. Let's spend a couple of minutes reminding ourselves of these two rights. If someone were to wake me up in the middle of the night, sort of shake me by the shoulders and say, Arthur, what is the most distinctive American right? It would be instinctive, I would say, freedom of the press. It is. We practice freedom of the press like no one practices freedom of the press. We're pathological about it. The British from whom we inherited it, hedge it in. They have libel laws. They have official secrets laws. They have contempt laws, all of which would be deemed unconstitutional in this country. And all things considered, it is worthy of the title, The Most Unique American Right. For 200 years, it has contributed mightily to our freedom, our intelligence, our ability to make up our own minds, to influence policy. We've experienced that in our lifetime. Vietnam, Watergate, Contragate, and now the nomination of Mr. Bork. Many of us didn't like the scene of a president resigning in shame. Many of us didn't like scenes of death and destruction coming in to our dining rooms during Vietnam. But nowhere else on earth could there have been a freer, a more open, a more influential public debate about public issues than in this country because the press gave us the information. A journalist, particularly one, you give a martini to, would say it's the First Amendment. The First Amendment. It is Holy Scripture. It's not some minor point in the Fifth Amendment. It's not some banality in a double-digit amendment. It's the First Amendment. And although I abjure absolutes, it probably is the closest thing we have in our Constitution to an absolute press. Over in the other corner of the ring in this bout is a right of an entirely different character, privacy. It's soft. It's subjective. What you may think is private, I might choose to shout. From the rooftops. It's not explicit in the Constitution. It isn't written into the Constitution in clear words the way the First Amendment contains speech and press. And that, by the way, is just uh, an example of the controversy you are experiencing these days over the nomination of Mr. Bork to the Supreme Court. What one sees in the Constitution is a function of what's explicit and what you think is implicit. He doesn't see privacy in the Constitution. Others do. So it's a soft right, a subjective right. It's an implicit right, not an explicit right. Press has an industry, the media, shouting its praises the forces of privacy are about as powerful as the papal guard. Nonetheless, can you imagine life without some privacy? Privacy is individuality. Privacy is autonomy. Privacy is self-determination, the ability to close the door. Can you imagine life without it? And the truth of the matter is there are various forms of privacy that are in our Constitution. As you sit here, are you worried that a policeman is breaking down your door? No. Because you know that our Constitution protects you against unreasonable searches and seizures. That's privacy. That spatial or physical privacy, your home, your office, your automobile. As you sit here, are you afraid of being seen with other people in the audience who might be Republicans, <laughs> or Whigs, or Bull Moosers, or Commies, or Klansmen? No. You know you've got freedom of association. You've got privacy of association. As you sit here, you're able to think anything you want. You can think that the moon is made of green cheese. You can think that the gophers are gonna win the Big Ten crown this (laughs) fall. Any fool thing you want, you can think it. That's because you have ideological privacy. You have privacy of your mind. You also have another form of privacy. The famous Supreme Court decision we hear so much about these days, Roe versus Wade, the so-called abortion decision. The philosophical premise of the woman's right to choose, recognized in Roe versus Wade, is based on the right of individual privacy over the body. That's its premise. That is why, to some, it is so important to know Mr. Bork's views about privacy, because you take away the privacy Pedestal, you remove the foundations of Roe versus Wade. Physical or bodily privacy. And it's been a wondrous doctrine in many ways because it's not just an abortion decision. I'm sure you've been reading over the past few years sad cases of people who are on respirators, people who wish to die, people who do not want heroic measures taken to preserve their lives. Every court that has recognized the so-called right to die, the Karen Ann Quinlan case in New Jersey, to California cases, to Alaska cases, every court that has said, you and I have a right to choose death, have done so on the basis of Roe versus Wade. The notion that we have privacy of the body and we can choose not to be on a respirator, not to have heroic steps taken to preserve our lives. What I'm trying to suggest is that although the Constitution does not explicitly say privacy, these are at least four areas in which there is a constitutional base to the right of privacy, worthy of being set off and contrasted to and weighed against freedom of the press. Well, those are our contestants, press privacy. It might be well to think for a few minutes about Why they're fighting? Why the conflict? What is it in mid-20th century America that produces the friction? I must tell you, I don't know. I don't know. And since I don't know, I can guess. So I move from being a lawyer to a sociologist. Think about the media. Think about the media. For the years since Vietnam and Watergate, we have been living in an era of media muscle flexing. They were praised for their coverage of Vietnam and Watergate, and they richly deserved it. And that's puffed them up it's also led to the Woodstein mentality. Every newspaper has investigative reporters, whatever that means. You have spotlight teams, eye teams, the investigators. The current cult of American journalism is aggressive journalism. Aggressive journalism is intrusive journalism. Intrusive journalism is privacy-invading journalism. There's a Pulitzer fever out there. How do I get Dan Rather's chair by being more aggressive than anyone else? What are some of our most highly rated television shows? 2020, 60 minutes. The nation seems to be insatiable in terms of waiting for Hiralgo Rivera's next cowboy adventure with a camera. Tie this aggressive, frame of reference with the technology of modern journalism, the minicam, cameras that can go anywhere, photograph under any light conditions, bounce signals off satellites. You know that. You watched the President of the United States in Beijing with the Pope in Alaska, with the Pope in Florida, live. Sadly, you watch Challenger explode in space, live. Current media technology permits the press to bring a picture and a voice from anywhere on the globe to your living room lie. It enables them to be at the car crashes, the plane crashes, the fires. It enables them to put a microphone under the quivering jowl of a tragedy victim and to ask that burning question, what's it like to see a loved one die? The most private moment becomes the most public moment. What's been happening in the world of privacy that causes it to come into conflict with this highly aggressive technologically oriented press? When I first started getting interested in privacy, it must have been the mid 60s you tap somebody on the shoulder, what do you think of privacy? They'd stare at you. Or they'd say, You mean wiretapping? No, not wiretapping. Or a very thoughtful person would say, Privacy? Privacy? Privacy is a white, middle class, suburban value. The rich buy their privacy with smoked glass on their limousines and big fences. The poor are so dependent on the dole there's no time for them to think about privacy and walk away. But a funny thing has happened since the mid-60s. Each year, American concern about the loss of privacy has escalated, has gone up. If you watch, every January, the field organization, the Yankovich organization, the Roper organization bring you attitudinal surveys. What do Americans think about? What do they like? What do they dislike? And every year since the 60s, concern about lost privacy has gone up and up and up and up. And ironically, in the poetic year of 1984, in 1984, concern about loss of privacy became a concern shared by a majority of Americans. It has become a majoritarian apprehension. Consciously or unconsciously, more and more of us are worrying about lost privacy. Why? Again, I'll play the sociologist and guess. I'll answer in one word, a symbolic word. Computers computers. Consciously or unconsciously, we have come to understand that there's virtually nothing we do in life that is now not registered in the bowels of a computer. We have come to understand that the Huxley image of the womb to tomb dossier is a reality. We have come to understand that we, the freest, Nation. We, the most righted people on earth, are also the most recorded, filed, dossiered, questioned people on earth. Think about that. Think, I think about that. I, a day, a day in my life. I wake up, I go to Boston's Logan Airport. I want to fly the friendly skies of United or I want to put on the wings of man. And I walk up to the counter, and there's a beatific face smiling at me that says, good morning. And it makes me feel good until my eyes blink and the face has disappeared. The head has now rotated 90 degrees. The full attention of the face is directed at me the terminal in front of her. And it dawns on me that my ability to fly flight 484 to Chicago doesn't depend on the fact that I'm standing there. It doesn't depend on the fact that I am waving a ticket into the brown hair. It depends on what's on that screen. Only if that screen recognizes me do I exist. I am merely a three-dimensional version of what's on the screen. I have no existence, no relevance. And I think about what's on that screen and the fact that it does not disappear when I land in Chicago. The fact that those tapes of these innocent seeming airline reservation systems are maintained and monitored periodically by the organized crime strike force of the Department of Justice and other organizations looking for travel patterns among mafia chieftains. Heaven help you if you travel with a mafia capo. It's got your name, it's got your address, it's got your telephone number, it's got your credit card number, it says who you're traveling with, whether you've reserved a car or a hotel room at the other end, whether you have special dietary requests, or need any physical assistance. I discovered yesterday, as I was... Fighting my way on in a moment of madness to a Northwest flight. <laughs> I forgot I not only had to fight to get myself on, but I had to fight to get my bag on because it didn't. I discovered that this innocent, you know, innocent reservation system also had a dialogue between someone at the reservation center and my secretary which was recorded on the screen, Donna says. And it went on and on. (laughs) What I'm suggesting to you is it's not an airline reservation system. It's a dossier. So I get off in Chicago, I do my O.J. Simpson thing through the (laughs) airport I want a car. Who do I speak to next? I speak to the Wizard of Avis. (laughs) And it repeats itself. This time adding information, Mr. Miller, who else is going to drive that car they want to know? Uh, Mr. Miller, where do you intend to take this car? Oh, Mr. Miller, could we have your driver registration number, which in Massachusetts is your social security number. And I drive off into the sunset, heading for a Hyatt or a Weston or a Hilton or a Sheraton. What has Sheraton done for you lately? (laughs) It's made another file. We understand that we live in an environment in which this technology threatens our privacy. We live in an environment in which credit decisions, insurance decisions, vocational decisions, government benefit decisions are all made on the basis of electronic files, we barely know exist, let alone have access to, and we become apprehensive. It's in that environment, that environment of urban crowding, high technology, information extraction, lost sense of individuality, that we begin to see the media as yet another organization with its hands in our informational pockets. Those are the contestants. That's what they're fighting about. How is it going to come out? Nostradamus, I am not. I don't know how it's going to come out. I can only tell you how I would like it to come out. So this is a very subjective if this is a heavyweight bout between two constitutional values, I, for one, would like to have a ringside seat. I would like to see the two of them get out there and fight up a storm. I would like to see them hit each other. I'd like to see some fancy footwork. I'd like to see a couple of low blows. They're sort of fun. But the one thing I do not want to see is a knockout. I don't want a KO. None of us would be served by losing either of these rights. I'd like to see the fight go the distance in the great American tradition. And then I would like to see both contestants come to center ring and the great referee in the sky, the Supremes, lift the hands of both fighters and say it's a draw. Thank you.
0: Professor Miller, Professor and Dean James F. Hoag, Dean at uh, William Mitchell School of Law, uh, with whom you were a colleague at the University of Minnesota in the mid-60s, and who's a member of this parish, Uh, he reported on one of his heroes. He said to me regarding your coming, uh, Arthur R. Miller will be as lively and engaging and insightful a speaker as you'll ever have, and I say amen. Thank you. We take a moment for those who must leave to do so and also to remind our radio audience that uh, you are listening to the Westminster Town Hall Forum originating from Westminster Presbyterian Church here in downtown Minneapolis. That our Town Hall Forum speaker, the 50th speaker in our history, is Arthur R. Miller, Harvard Law School professor, and his theme, Media versus Privacy, a Clash of Constitutional Values. Our co-sponsor today, Moss and Barnett, a professional association, and we thank them for helping this to happen. I'm tempted uh, in having said that I have your book, The Assault on Privacy, Professor Miller, to read a poem that you uh, have in the very frontis of the book called Deprivacy, written by Felicia Lampert. Although we feel unknown, ignored, as unrecorded blanks take heart, our vital selves are stored in giant databanks. Our childhoods and maturities efficiently compiled, our stocks and insecurities all permanently filed our tastes and our proclivities in gross and in particular, our incomes, our activities, both extra and curricular. And such will be our happy state until the day we die, when we'll be snatched up by the great computer in the sky. (laughs) I love it. Thanks for sharing that with us. Sir, would you return to the platform and allow us to?
1: I must confess that I've become totally schizoid about uh, Mr. Bork's nomination. He's a man I know. Uh, He's a man of enormous intellectual gifts. Mm -hmm. When the former Chief Justice of the United States said yesterday he didn't know of anyone more qualified. Mm -hmm. If you think of qualifications in terms of legal horsepower, mental horsepower, uh, Mr. Bork takes second place to none. Uh, But as you might suspect, I am a deep believer in the notion that our Constitution speaks beyond 1787 and that there are things implicit in it, things that have to be teased out over time by creative justices, and I have a great deal of concern and apprehension that Justice Bork will not contribute to that process, that he takes his constitutional law as of a moment in time, and he would not be as creative with the Constitution as I think a justice should be. I I also quite obviously, uh, reflecting my own biases, uh, am somewhat left of center, not terribly left of center, but somewhat left of center, wherever center is these days. And I'm concerned that we're not not solely talking about Justice Bork, we're talking about Chief Justice Rehnquist, Justice O'Connor, Justice Scalia. That's four votes, a solid four votes. Now, I, I don't think the foundations of the republic would crumble with Mr. Bork on the court. I think there is a lot of hysteria in the air. But uh, thank you. I, I wish it was someone
0: else. I have a, a question. A question from the audience. Does the victim of a sexual or personal assault have the right to prevent news and television cameras from the courtroom? In other words, is the victim's right to privacy more important than the public's right to know? Uh,
1: Am I given more than one sentence to respond to that? That, that, I, I tease on a serious subject. That, that to me, is one of the most difficult problems. Uh, You have the public's right to know, Uh, you have free press, you have somewhat inconsistently the notion of a fair trial for the accused, and of course you've got the victim's rights. And uh, we live in an era in which quite, quite justifiably victims victims of crime are finally having their voice heard in the land. Uh, Victims of crime all too frequently are double victimized first by the crime and then by the judicial process that's employed. It can be a very harsh and very very unpleasant business to be a witness as a crime victim. Most good judges will try to protect a sex crime victim, particularly a child, from media scrutiny. They will do it either by closing the courtroom, although that has become a less popular technique because of our sensitivity about press, but quite fortunately, they often can reach an accommodation with the press. With the press, and this does demonstrate good faith and sensitivity on the part of most journalists that when you're covering a sex crime nothing very much turns on the identity of the victim. You can report the prosecution, you can engage in the press oversight function without necessarily identifying the person. A few years ago there was a major prosecution in New Bedford, Massachusetts of a gang rape of a woman of a woman, by consent, her name was never revealed except inadvertently by one press organization, and that, that was one of the finer days of the American media. Mm-hmm. Thank you
0: Another question from the audience, and I think you 've addressed it in part, but still. Why is there such a lack of interest by the general public on the right to privacy? It's been 10 years since the Privacy Study Commission, Federal Commission, made its recommendations, and none of its major recommendations have been adopted, that is, credit reporting, medical information, et cetera. Mm. Uh,
1: Let me respond in two stages. First, although it is true that the major recommendations of the Privacy Study Commission have never found their way into legislation. It also is true that private organizations like the American Hospital Association, the American Psychiatric Association, a whole range of organizations, right down into American industry, have come a long way in their protection of the privacy of their patients, of their employees, of their Client. It has been a situation in which a lot of the objectives of the Privacy Commission have been achieved not through legislation but through the adjustment of practices of private organizations. The reason that you don't hear much about privacy is I think in part what I said in my remarks. There is no organized lobbying group for privacy. Uh, there's no cabal. There's no privacy protection league. Uh, it's not an industry. It is not a natural grouping. It's a, it's just a ragtag band of noisy people like myself who <laughs> just just go out and do our thing. Uh, in addition, there are massive economic organizations in our society opposed to the cost of privacy. Credit reporting bureaus, the, the banking industry, uh, manufacturing companies see protection of privacy as a cost or a line item on a budget that puts us even further behind in the competitive world in which business lives. So it, it, uh, it tends to take individual issues to crystallize And obviously the two individual issues on the nation's agenda today, which are beginning to crystallize national debate about privacy are AIDS and drug testing. Uh, My own view is that the national calamity about AIDS and about drugs will cause us to think long and hard about the privacy implications of testing privacy implications of those three poor little kids down in Florida who are now stigmatized for life and treated as lepers Hmm. because of the public revelation of
0: the fact that they contracted
1: AIDS through a blood transfusion.
0: Perhaps you've just answered the question that comes next uh, early in your most recent uh, response. You have devoted a good deal of your life and career to Americans and their rights. What has been your motivation?
1: Um, I don't really know. I have always been a private person myself. I think I simply live out my own internal value structure regarding privacy. I have seen a number of people victimized by privacy failures. I think that there's a need for a voice that simply says to people, you're not bad people. You media people are not bad people. You industrial people are not bad people. You governmental people are not bad people. All I'm really asking you to do is think about the privacy implications of that file, or that blood testing, or that credit report. Uh, I just came to be very impressed in the 60s when I worked with Senator Sam Irvin, who was Watergate, but before Watergate, he was a great believer in the right of privacy, and he feared governmental data banking. When I started to take a look at some of the files that were being maintained in the 60s on Vietnam protesters, on political dissidents, uh, on our elderly population, the kinds of questionnaires that HEW, as it was then known, was, was propagating on people as conditions for getting social security or medical benefits, I, I was just personally offended by it. Thank you.
0: The next two- Questions are closely related. Do public servants or political candidates abrogate their rights of privacy by seeking or holding public office? Are we abusing their privacy? And then would you comment on the press coverage of presidential candidates, Hart and uh, Biden? Too intrusive, question mark. Yes,
1: yes, and yes.
0: (laughs) Um,
1: There's no doubt. There's no doubt that people who go into public uh, life most particularly candidates, but right down to some of the great players you've got on the Minnesota Twins. You, when when you seek to live the public life, uh, you give up some of your privacy. In the context of political figures, particularly those people who would seek our vote, we have a right to know. We have a right to know a great deal about the man who would be president. Uh, That's in the finest traditions of free speech and free press, Uh, and we probably have a greater right to know about an elected official than about an appointed official, than about a theatrical person or a baseball player or a humble law professor. Uh, Nonetheless, there are limits. There are limits. The cases of Hart and Biden, I think, are good illustrations of a very hard line to draw. I don't like the notion of the American media playing gumshoe, being surveillance agents. I don't like the notion of the American media engaging in the kind of intrusive behavior that we would not tolerate from the police. The media are powerful. They're not government, but they are so powerful that their intrusive orientation needs to be contained as we have contained it with the police. But when there is reason to believe that a candidate for any significant office is not being open, honest, When there is reason to believe that there is a veracity issue, a judgment issue, I believe that opens the door a little bit wider. Absent absent any reason to believe a lack of truthfulness, I think the press should stop. Once there is a legitimate basis for being concerned, I believe the press can go a bit further. In Mr. Hart's case, questions about his morality, his personal morality had been on the table since 84. I think he opened himself up to that. There were very good reasons to believe he was not being truthful about it between 84 and an earlier point in this year. He also invited people to follow him. I don't put much on that. I think that there was enough smoke for a good journalist to look for a bit of fire. Mr. Biden's case, it all came tumbling out, didn't it? Um, I mean, the press just sat there. Somebody (laughs) closed his eyes and said, you know, I think I'm listening to Kinnick, not Biden. And And once there was a question of that, everything else sort of tumbled. Again, there was that notion of smoke. On the other hand the notion that the New York Times the New York Times could send a questionnaire out to candidates for no reason whatsoever and ask them whether they had ever committed adultery struck me as being bizarre
0: Another question. The FCC has recently abandoned the equal time doctrine. Do you think that this will materially affect the balance of viewpoints available to the public through news media in general? I don't think the
1: uh, end of the equal time obligation will materially affect, materially affect. is enough interest in journalists on public interest questions so that viewpoints probably will continue to be reflected on television. But I think at the margins, I think the sort of less popular voices may get cut out certain issues will not be covered as effectively as they once were. I think local television and radio will be less likely to grant full coverage of certain issues. In other words, I wouldn't say materially affected. What I would say is I believe there will be some erosion, particularly in an era in which all of our television networks are now controlled by major corporations with no media orientation, General Electric, etc., etc. There is reason to be concerned about the erosion in the quality of information on television and radio, and therefore I, uh, I regret that equal time is a thing of the past.
0: There are two quotes that leap to my mind as I stand here near the end of our program. One is a sentence of your own from your fine book, Man must shape his tools lest they shape him. And then your early quote from French theologian Jacques Ellul, Modern man never asks himself what we will have to pay for his power. Never asks himself what he will have to pay for his power. This is the question we ought to be asking. It seems to me you've helped us in a very fresh and insightful way to ask that question and to look at the tools that can and might might and must shape us. And we are your debtor. Uh, I understand that uh, you are sometimes asked, are you the real Arthur Miller? (laughs) Well, given what I've just shared based on this hour's experience, From this time forth, Arthur R. Miller is the real Arthur Miller. (laughs) Thank Thank you.